0: A Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is October 20th. 2020, and this is episode 2756 of the Survival Podcast. And it is called 20 Perennial Herbs for Perennial Production. Perennial means it comes back over and over and over and over again. Annual means comes for one year and then goes away. Sometimes annuals look like perennials because they drop a whole bunch of seeds on the ground and it just grows back by itself. A lot of people think things like, uh, for instance, I've heard people, informed people, I mean smart people. I mean people that know plants. Not really, really super know plants, but people that in general you can rely on with pretty good advice about plants. Say something like lamb's quarters, which is a weed and herb and something we'll be talking about today, is a perennial. And the reason they said it's perennial is they they go to a place and there's a big pile of lamb's quarters there. They come back next year, there's a big pile of lamb's quarters right there. It must be perennial. No, it's an annual that drops about 800 gazillion seeds, and therefore some of them are going to grow where it was last year unless something changes. Uh, But perennial, when I talk about it today, I mean we're going to plant this thing, and either winter comes and it's like, I don't give a shit it's winter. I'm going to just be a plant. I'm just going to keep growing. Or it's going to be like, oh, winter, crap, (laughs) dies to the ground, but the roots are like, I'm still here. And when spring comes, up it comes from the ground. We are growing the same plant year after year after year after year. And I didn't even cheat today. I didn't include anything like, sometimes when I do perennials, so like, i say, it's really isn't a perennial. But it's so easy to reproduce that I, no, no, I didn't do that. Like, see, garlic to me is almost perennial if you do it right. But it ain't really perennial. Actually, there's some varieties that are, but we didn't go there today. Um, what I mean here is you plant this thing and you take care of it. And it's going to come back year after year after year. Now, some of them are really long-lived perennials. Some of them are shorter-lived. Maybe th- short-lived perennial could be three to six years is considered like a short-lived perennial. So they may require some repropagation after that. But in general, we're going to put this in the ground. It's going to start growing, and it's going to be around a while. And I think this will be a cool show. It actually was done in a sort of kind of way by somebody else for me. GMOFreeUSA.org. Yeah. Um, they gave me 14 of the 20. I was on Parlor last night, the one that all you guys tell me when I say, hey, you should get on Parlor instead of Twitter and Facebook and that crap and get off these platforms that censor you and steal your information and sell you to corporations and report you to the government and have no respect for you whatsoever and see you as a piece of property to be sold and bartered with and treated like a little bitch. And you realize, like, big Parler is your right-wing echo chamber. Well, I was on there last night, and somebody shared this graphic. At least 14 perennial herbs. That's about as non-right-wing or political as we can get. And uh, I thought, man, this is great. So I shared it on a couple different platforms. I shared it on uh, MeWe as well and said, hey, this seems like a uh, TSP episode waiting to happen. Got a lot of thumbs up and things like that, so I figured people were into it. And then I was like, 14, see, when somebody does the work for you, right, and then you just take that and you don't do nothing extra with it, that's coasting. It means you didn't give your all. It didn't mean you didn't even give more than a minimum. I'm not big on giving the minimum, so I'm like, well, let me put some additional herbs in there. So I just threw some in off the top of my head. And I ended up with seventeen, and then my OCD kicked in, and I started having this twitch behind my ear because I can't have an odd number, right? Like, I don't know if that's my AC, OCD, and I really don't consider myself an OCD person. It's more of an Asperger's thing, like numeric patterns. And seventeen just isn't a number that should be in a list. So I was like, okay, so I'm like, I got to come up with a couple more, one more to be eighteen, because I'd be okay with eighteen. And then I started looking up some stuff to remind myself of things that I forgot that I knew. And I found two more, so I had 19. Now I either had to eliminate one or had to add one, and I ended up deciding to add one and went to 20. That's how we got to 20 of these perennial herbs. If you're not somebody that generally enjoys a show like this, like I own Garden or whatever, this is a show for you. To me, herbs are like the perfect onboarding plant to gardening. You teach people about herbs, and they give it a shot, and they can do it in a little spot in the backyard or a few pots or something like that. And and, and one of two things happen. They grow some herbs, and they say, this is cool. And they're like, okay, I have herbs now. And they start using herbs in their cooking, and maybe they learn to dry some. And that just kind of stops there. Like, I've got my little herb gardens, and I'm good. And this is my thing that I do that's like growing food without all the work that comes into being a gardener. Uh, or they try it, and they're like, well, maybe I should grow me some peppers and beans and some other stuff, too. And next thing you know, they become a full-on boarded gardener. So I like both of those results. I like people that are in apartments that are like, I can't really do all this stuff Jack talks about that end up with a few buckets or pots or whatever on a porch. And they have fresh food right in their own little backyard-ish area. And I like people that it ends up taking all the way to another level. They really do so much for us. To me, herbs are like one of, you can call it God or nature, depending on what you believe, or the universe, whatever makes you happy, but a gift to humans. Herbs do so much for us. We're going to talk about what herbs do for us, what the hell an herb is in the first place, what makes a plant an herb versus not an herb. A whole bunch of plants that we don't think of verbs technically are herbs, but... We're going to zone in on the culinary medicinal value of specific herbs today that are perennial. And we'll talk about all that in a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, mention our two sponsors of the day. We're talking about herbs today, so who else would we have as a sponsor today other than Western Botanicals? I mean, they're the, the, herbs, the herb source for most of the TSP community. If you don't have it grown in your backyard or the woods and don't know where to get it, and you need something herbal, you can get it from Western Botanicals. If you need raw herbs, they've got that. If you need stuff to make some sort of herbal salve like beeswax or menthol crystals for like a deep heat ointment or something like that, they've got that. And if you just want somebody to have already put the formulation together for you, whether it's like a capsule or an ointment or a salve or a tincture, they have that too. Basically, if it's herbal and legal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals where it's all either organically grown or wildcrafted. This is a sponsor that's been with us for a decade. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. If you check out the Free State Project at fsp.org, you will find that Liberty in Your Lifetime is Possible, where a group of people have gotten together and began to move to New Hampshire over a decade ago, moving thousands of liberty oriented people to New Hampshire to drag it, if necessary, kicking and screaming into the world of liberty. And their current uh, thing that they're doing right now is just trying to get you to, hey, why don't you take a vacation? Come to New Hampshire. Meet some cool people, hang out, enjoy yourself, and then decide if this place is right for you. I think that's a great way. I've talked about a lot of different strategic relocation options over the years, from moving to the country, to getting out of certain states, to moving to a place like New Hampshire. I've always said, go visit and don't do the tourist thing. Like, you can do the tourist thing, but don't just do the tourist thing. Try to live in a place for just a few days, the way that you would live if you moved there, to actually know... Kind of what you're getting into. I think if you give New Hampshire a look like that, you might find a new home. Check them out today at fsp.org. And if you want to learn more about the Visit New Hampshire program, just throw a forward slash visit nh after fsp.org. With that, let us get into our uh, topic of the day, which again is 20 perennial herbs. Let's start out. What is an herb? In general, like I said, a lot of plants are actually herbs, though we don't consider them herbs. Um, A lot of times we think only of aromatic, flavorful, culinary, medicinal plants as herbs. But I think you'll also find that most plants are one of those things. They can eat, or they're used for fibers, they're used for food, they're used for medicine. Even plants that we think of as being highly toxic often have medicinal uses. That doesn't mean go around playing with stuff that you don't know about, because you could kill yourself. Like, gee, that foxglove looks pretty. Oh, watch me die. Okay? Okay. Now, the good news is everything I'm going to talk about today is incredibly safe to, uh, to work with, to grow, to use. But basically, an herb is any plant whose stem does not produce woody, persistent tissue and generally dies back at the end of each growing season. And yet, we're talking about perennial herbs. So what I mean when I say that and what the, de- the definition means is, first of all, generally. So that doesn't mean it has to. If we look at something like rosemary, I don't think anybody claims that rosemary is not, and that's one of our herbs today, is not an herb. Like, rosemary is generally recognized as an herb. I would definitely call the stems on mature rosemary woody and persistent. So it's not a 100% rule. The thing that makes these perennials, though, is either they do die back and come back from the root system Or the reason that they don't die back for you is because you're in a temperate enough climate, you're in a moderate enough climate, that it's not enough to knock them back. So that would be, like, a good example of this would be mint. I I almost never see mint, or in my climate, oregano, knocked back to the ground in our winter. If you lived in Pennsylvania, you might very well see your mint just look like it's gone, but then next year, as long as the ground didn't freeze too hard, down to like zone three, I think, with most mints, your, your mint would come back. So that's, that's basically what makes an herb, generally. So it's, it's, it's kind of a loose definition, and I'm sure a botanist will email me and tell me how wrong I am. But that's good enough for us to understand. For my purposes today, herbs are plants that we can grow that provides some useful thing to us that would be generally recognized by most people as an herb. Okay? That's, that's, That's what I'm going to be using for today. So what do herbs do for us? Why should we even give a shit? One of the biggest and most overlooked things that herbs do is attract beneficial insects. Right now, I have these new gardens that I put in this year. And it was kind of a first pass through, and I did kind of a scattered planting so any place that I just had extra space, I just threw stuff to see how it would do. And one of the things I threw a lot in this year was basil, three different kinds. Now, it's an annual, not a perennial herb, but it's, it's good for my purposes of explaining this. Uh, there's a purple, there's a, a regular, like Genovese, your normal kind of sweet basil, and a lemon basil. And they're, they're kind of strewn throughout. And when I go out there in the morning, even in these cooler months now, I mean, there's just bees and wasps all over those flowers. Another herb that I planted this year, I planted one of them, and it's, it's the size of a daggone bush called perilla. It's also covered with insects. But many of our perennial herbs will also flower and, and attract beneficial insects, beneficial pollinators and things like that. Um, I have I've garlic chives. I've had to start ripping them out because they've gotten invasive damn near. And uh, the flowers on those are just, again, covered with beneficials. Additionally, they they tend to attract beneficials that like to kind of live in them or around them, even if they're not flowering. When some of the stuff that I've removed this year, like oh spider, whoop oh, spider, oh, spider, so definitely provide habitat for beneficials. Next, they provide flavor and or food. It's amazing the difference that you can make in your food with fresh herbs. It, it, it's I've watched people where I've done something really simple like added some fresh herbs. Take rosemary and thyme we'll talk about today. So you make somebody a steak, and instead of just making that steak, you take some rosemary and thyme, and you kind of brush the bottom of the grease in the pan. You brush that steak with it, and you also take some oil and some of that herb and put it on the board and lay the steak into that. Slice the steak before you serve it so that it's kind of mixed in with that herb oil. And it's a total different level. right? And all we've done is taken a couple sticks of, of, of green weeds and we've infused their flavor, not even into, but onto that steak. And it's, it's the difference between us, the steak, and, and wow, this is really amazing. And some herbs do provide us more of a, a direct food, uh, mostly not what we're talking about today. It, it tends to be more of the annual herbs that are like that, but I would include things like chives. Is basically a food. You're not going to get fat eating them or nothing, but you are consuming the herb as a food, usually added to something else, though. Um, they require little care. Now, I think that one of the reasons people think herbs ain't as easy as he says is people think little care means no care. So, and little care is relative to the location. So, and it's also relative to the climate and the season. So if you take and try to plant even a really hardy herb like oregano in July as a baby plant in Texas in the direct sun, and you then don't give it any water or protection, you will probably have it scorch and die. Now that same plant, if it would have been planted early in the spring it had been taken well care of, as long as it gets enough water to not completely dry out, he would probably hit that scorching summer of Texas and be like, bring it on. I got this. I'm just going to, you, you bring the heat, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow more. It's all relative to the time, the season, and what you think that means. And there's also like, do you have deep, beautiful soil? Where when that plant is fully established and has a deep root system, it can go through a heavy drought and not really care. Or do you live where I live and you have like five inches of soil and then a rock bed? So they're little care relative to any other type of plant in that same scenario. So they do require some care. And the number one thing that they do need is enough moisture like any plant needs. Next, you know, they make tea. And I think that's like it could be just thrown in with provide flavor and food. But I find that to be so much more of a thing. Because it's also one of those things that can separate us from our need to rely on imports and stores. Most of us drink a lot of coffee and tea in our lives. And I drink a lot of coffee. I also drink a lot of tea. I drink almost no tea that is like, you know, what the British would call tea. Almost all the tea I drink, bought or made from the backyard, comes from herbs. Even when I do, like I like um, Earl Grey and I like uh, green tea. Almost always, including or adding to that, some sort of herbal infusion, and that that is a quality of life thing as well. Next, they provide a big return from a small space. So, if you are that person I talked about in the beginning, and you're living in an apartment and all you got is that little backyard, you know you can grow a tomato and a pepper out there, but you're not going to get a big return for your investment in time and space, and it may become very problematic depending on what kind of solar exposure you get. Odds are you can find half a dozen herbs that whether you get a lot of sun, a little sun, whatever, will do okay. And we'll provide this ongoing, every day you can use a little bit of fresh grown. And to me, that's a big return. If I have something that, you know, on my little back porch when I'm an apartment dweller, 200 days a year I can use something from it, even if it's a small amount, in my food, my cooking, my salads, my soups, etc., my teas, that's a big return that's a huge return there's a lot of people with gardens that can't say that other than they store food or can't food or freeze food whatever uh, next they provide medicine now we're not going to go deep into most of these for medicinal uses today but I'm going to tell you that a lot of a lot of herbs that we think of as purely culinary have tremendous medicinal uses let's look at like one of the most if I say herb and say name three herbs most people one of those three herbs will be oregano it's just that it's that thing that everybody you know you make Italian food you put oregano in it, right? oregano oregano is not just culinary herb it is an antimicrobial it is an antibacterial it is an antiviral oil of oregano essential oils will will actually work very well for all of those purposes it's also known as a calmative so uh used the right way can help actually calm down a person's emotional state, just a little bit. I mean, it's not going to like mellow you out like a quaalude or anything, for God's sakes, but it has that, and it has about 20 other what are called herbal actions, and I'm not going to go into those today, but if you go to the Survival Podcast and look up herbal actions, I have done four shows, 10 each herbal actions covering the 40 primary herbal actions that herbals can do. That one is not like today. That one is like a, a, a miniature e-course in, herbal, in herbology. All right? But there is a lot of medicinal value to herbs. And I think that one of the things that often gets overlooked is when we're not relying on dried out, God knows how old, little tiny bottles of, of God knows how produced herbs from the store. And they're not all bad. I mean, if you go in my spice cabinet, you'll find some stuff like that because in some instances, that's what I need. Right, But if we're using fresh herbs... And we're using fresh herbs in our cooking, and our salads, and our stoops, soups, and we're using it in teas. What we're doing is we're basically constantly micro-dosing ourselves with all these herbal actions, all these beneficial actions of herbs, and I, I don't think that can help but move us more toward a healthy lifestyle. So let's go. I'm gonna go pretty quick through these herbs. I'm not gonna give like a big dissertation on each one, but I just kind of wanted to expose you to some ideas and things that you can do with them and, and ways to grow them. The first one I and these are in these are in alphabetical order because the graphic that I found was in alphabetical order, and so my my Aspergers made me then once I had that list every time I added something to it file it in there alphabetically. So I did, if it wasn't alphabetical I wouldn't care, but since it started out that way I didn't want to mess it up. Oh, that's why it's in a particular order. So it's not in order of preference or value. I also want to say before I go through this, not everybody's going to grow all these. Some of you are going to have to make some adaptations to even grow them if you want them to be perennial. Because if it goes to zone 8, like the first one, and you live in zone 4, well, it will die if you leave it outside. And that is the case with our first one. First one is bay leaf. Bay leaf is one of those herbs that I think makes a lot of sense to grow. And it's, is it really an herb? Like I said, that is a subjective thing because bay bay is basically a tree or a shrub. And it is perennial, and it is evergreen, so it doesn't die back. It doesn't fit the strict definition. Um, but it generally will overwinter in zone 8 and above. So for me, it's right at the kind of border there. I have a good friend who has a great big bay tree in it. Does just fine through our winters, but he also has it in a pot and brings it inside during the most harsh freezes. We get some freezes here, not every year, but like every third year, we'll get a hard winter where we'll have a few days where it goes well below 20 degrees and mostly stays below 20 degrees and we will stay below freezing for three or four days in a row, which many of you in the north are going, big whoop. Trust me, in the south, it's a big whoop because nothing here is designed to deal with that, down to plumbing because it's so rare that it happens, so it, it hits us harder. So bay leaf is one of those things most people are familiar with bay leaves in that there's a soup recipe, and it says add two bay leaves, and at the end of the cook, take them out and throw them away. Right? And I've heard of some people that have these traditions, and they're like, well, my grandma always said if you find the bay leaf in your soup, it's good luck, and they don't know where the tradition came from. That's because grandma didn't want to take the leaves out and didn't want you to bitch about them. That's where that comes from because my grandmother told me that's why she used to do it. Anyway, um, when you use bay from the store that's been dried and you use a fresh bay leaf in your cooking, the difference is night and day. That's the main reason to do it. Now, the nice thing is bay can grow in a really substantial plant or it can be maintained as a small plant in a pot. It's one of those ones that's really probably worth it if you don't live where it can be outside to grow one in a pot and bring it in when necessary to protect it. Otherwise, if you're in zone 8 or above, which you know probably some portion of you guys are, like 20% of the audience is, you can just grow a big, giant bay bush tree outside. Next up, bergamot, also known as bee balm. This is my favorite herb that I would classify as highly overlooked. First of all, it's hardy as all get-out. It's in the mint family, and almost everything in the mint family is going to be hardy to Zone 3. That means almost everybody can grow it, and it doesn't really give a shit if you're in Zone 9. It'll grow there, too. It doesn't care. It is, it is a gorgeous weed, is the best way I can describe it. It gets these beautiful pom-pom-looking flowers. It attracts everything from wasps and bees to... Uh, it has this really interesting flavor. I mentioned Earl Grey tea. Earl Grey tea uses oil of bergamot, but this is from a citrus. This is a type of orange that generally grows in, like, southern Italy or central Italy. I'm not sure which one. Uh, But it's an orange that's not really useful for anything other than the oil that that comes from its rind. And it has this kind of velvety taste. It has nothing to do with what bee bomb is, but it's known as bergamot or wild bergamot because it has that same characteristic. It's this velvety—it's almost, to me— if you were to take a good black tea along with b balm and make an infusion tea with that and you were to put an earl grey next to it, it's very difficult to, to really know which one's which other than a really great earl grey tea is going to kind of shine through as that's what it is. It, it's very, very similar. The mouth feel is almost identical. Um, it is useful in so many ways because of that for teas If you were to combine it with lemon balm, it makes a fantastic tea. That's one of my favorite teas is lemon balm and bergamot. Um, It's almost impossible to kill. It's easy to root. There is one thing to know about bergamot, and I'll just say it now. This has to do with anything that's in the mint family, so lemon balm, spearmint, etc. They need some level of containment, or they need to go in a place where you don't care that they get away. Because they will spread and spread and spread, and they will take over an area, and they will choke out other plants. They're, they're, I, I heard a, 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 a permaculturist who I really like one time say this: in permaculture, there are no weeds, but there are plants that will choke out all your other plants if you don't control them right. Bergamot is definitely one of them. It is incredibly hardy. Uh, my my son's uncle on his birth father's side is a dude named Dale. Dale's pretty big on, like, you know, yard maintenance type person, but he is not a gardener. He lives in upstate New York. He's planted some of this years ago. He has it all over his property. He can't get rid of it, and he has no problems with it. He loves it because it just looks really cool. But, I mean, that's the kind of plant it is. Once it, and especially in your northeastern climate, once it takes hold, it is not going anywhere. It will take heroic me- methods to get it to go away. So I would not take bergamot. Or, or bee bomb and plant it in the center of your vegetable garden because it will become a bergamot garden. So this is a plant to grow either in its own dedicated beds or like in edges if you have the ability to do that. That's what Dale does. He has like in the edges of his property and whatever. And you know if it spreads inwards, since he's going to mow the lawn, it doesn't matter and uh, something like that. And I would say that of all mints, great thing to grow in pots. One of the things you can do that really is quite useful. If you want mints and things like that, especially if you're going to let them go and let them flower and things like that to keep control in your garden, you get a great big pot and set it out where your garden is. And if you have an irrigation system, sit it so that when the irrigation system goes off, the pot gets water. Right? Another thing you can do, you better be careful if you do this though, is you can get like a great big pot and bury it in your garden and leave the top of the pot like two inches above the surface and plant your mint into it. If it's a deep enough pot, you won't it, mint's not going to go root 2 2 feet down. It will try to crawl over anywhere it touches. It. So this is a risk play. You're going to have to maintain it, prune it, etc., but that's one way you can use bergamot and other mints in the garden itself. The next one is also in the mint family, it's catnip. So catnip is something that gets our kitty cats high for about three and a half seconds. It's kind of fun to watch them, but then it's over and they just don't care anymore. Um, But you might wonder, well, what's, what's the benefit of catnip to everybody except Morris? And number one is it is actually very repellent to one of the worst pests of the gardener, and that is the squash bug. Not vine borers, but squash bugs. Hate it. So if you have a great big area that you can dedicate to growing catnip, and you let it get nice and big, and it it flowers pretty early in the season, and right as it's flowering, if you take out a rice knife or something and cut it, so it's not going to root where you put it, and you strewn it around and through where you grow your squash, it will drastically cut back your your squash bugs. On the other hand, a lot of beneficials really like it, so it's very useful uh, for bringing in beneficial insects. Just again, it's a mint, it can run amok, Make sure you put some sort of control mechanism in place. Next is chives. Uh, And when I say chives, today I'm speaking of onion chives. I have found, just as an aside, garlic chives are a lot easier to grow, and I just find them a lot less useful. Uh, I had this year, and I still have places where I'm pulling out roots of them where they've just taken over places, and I just have way more than I can use. I need like one pot of garlic chives, and I have all the chives I need for garlic chives for the rest of my life. Onion chives seem a little harder to kind of get going, but once they get going, they're just as um, hardy. They seem to be less, they're, they're a clumping uh, perennial, so they, so they start to clump and they kind of expand outward. Uh, but less aggressive than garlic chives. The garlic chive is a much bigger plant. Um, they have a beautiful little flower that goes on them, usually they're pink. They taste fantastic. And they are a clumping, spreading perennial that you can plant in your garden. They're pretty easy to yank a clump out, replant somewhere else, dig some up if there's too many, give them away, whatever, and keep planting your peppers and tomatoes and everything else. And I think they can and should go in your gardens, like directly co-planted in your gardens. They don't seem to cause any trouble whatsoever. In my grandfather's garden, with enough reseeding and all over the years, we had no chives in the garden, but we had chives... Everywhere around the garden. I mean, they just grew in clumps in the grass. Again, that's northeastern Pennsylvania, not you know, central, north central Texas, like where I live now. But chives to me are one of the biggest bang for the buck herbs in flavor you can get. If I was gonna put together six herbs to grow on a patio, I would have to think about getting that list down to six. I would not have to think that one of them is going to be chives. It is absolutely the case. One of them is going to be chives, and one of them is probably going to be thyme. And one is probably going to be oregano. And I'd have to think about the other three. And the first one is going to be chives. Because they're so, I mean, chives change food for the better. One of the things that we've started to make occasionally, we probably make this once every two months. We kind of miss mac and cheese uh, with going keto. So we use the cauliflower rice. In a, as a noodle substitute and we just make a good mac and cheese and we usually use bacon so like a nice thick bacon crisped up instead of because you know good mac and cheese you put bread crumbs on it, you toast the top and then you get the little crunch and yeah no we use bacon bacon's crunchy and as good as that is when we go out to the garden and we finally chop some chives and sprinkle some chives on it it goes from being a side dish to a freaking meal and anybody we've served that to is like, holy crap, that's good. And it, you can't even really say it, but if you try it without it, those chives are the difference. The same thing with a lot of soups and things like that, or salads and all. And I'm not a big onion person, raw onion. Like, I love to cook with onion, but I'm not a big raw onion person at all. Like I'm the guy, that, if I do break down and have a big old burger and it comes with a big onion on it, I throw the onion away, and I would prefer it wasn't there because I don't really care for the strong onion flavor that it even leaves behind after you take it away. And yet, I love chives. Um, If you do things like cream cheese, like the whipped cream cheese, mix chives into it. My wife buys a a, a chive and onion cream cheese. So much better with fresh chives than just in the whipped one. If you do uh, yogurt cheese, chives, boom. I mean, just definitely. Chives, chives, chives. Uh, Zone three, Hardy. Next, comfrey. Comfrey is not something you're going to sit down and eat a bowl of. The federal government says it will kill your liver if you use it internally. I call 100% 1,000, 1,000,000% bullshit on that claim. I'm not going to go deep into it today. I've covered it in the past. But if you go look at the two studies that were used to say that, that Comfrey should not be used internally, you, you if your IQ is above 75, you'll figure out why I say it's bullshit. I'll just leave it at that. It's a 10,000 year history of being used by humans internally and no problems until we made concentrates from it and people were taking doses equivalent to 60,000 leaves, which nobody would ever eat 60,000 leaves of of confrits. I say that only because whenever I mention the plant, you're going to die, comes out of the audience from people that think they're informed and aren't. I, I don't find it to be that useful of an herb internally anyway. What I do and... I will not apologize for and you can decide if you think it's safe to do for yourself is when comfrey flowers I will often pull the flowers off of comfrey and add them to, to salads and things like that. Much like borage which is a relative of comfrey that's completely safe to eat even though it has the same stuff that comfrey does but I'll let that go um, it has a cucumber like flavor and the blossoms really really do so that's, that's the, the ed- edible part. I grow comfrey for a lot of reasons. One I use it as a mulch Because it's high nutrient. I use it to make green manure tea, which you can look up how to do that. I don't have the time to go into it today. But basically, you can make a really stinky fertilizer fluid out of it. And it, it works fantastically to make your other plants grow. And medicinally, it is one of the best dermal regenerators there is. A dermal regenerator means it makes skin grow back. It does it so well that the main caution with comfrey is if you have a deep wound, don't put comfrey on it. Because if it's a deep wound that's going to have any sort of infection it needs to clear and needs to drain, it can heal so fast on the surface that it's like stitching a a, a wound that shouldn't be stitched, if that makes sense. So your minor abrasions, your cuts, your scrapes, etc., and I have found it to be the number one thing you can do to mitigate fire ant stings, especially if it's done immediately. And while I'm big on salves and stuff like that, and I think the best way to use comfrey for most people for most times is to make a salve, and that is basically you take comfrey leaf, you put it in oil, you, you warm it like in a small crock pot is a great way. The little mini crock pots that you can usually find at like um, Habitat, not Habitat for your man, it was uh, at Goodwill stores, you can usually find it for like 10 bucks or less. Um, one of those, put it on low, throw your comfrey leaves, cover it with, with like an olive oil, let it infuse for a day strain it off and then throw it back in the crock pot turn it on and throw beeswax in it So you melt enough beeswax in it that when it when it cools it'll be the texture you're looking for from an ointment so you want it to be easy to, to spread but not pour out of a container pour it into a container boom done however for fire ant stings I have found the absolute best thing you can do go grab a leaf that's that's currently growing mash it up in your hand so it starts to get you know, wet and, and the stuff starts to come out and rub it on the fire ant bites. If you do that within the first minute or two, most fire ant bites will completely go away and never break out. I don't know why a salve wouldn't do the same thing, but it doesn't seem to, but it's something you can experiment with. It's easy to propagate from root cuttings. I know people that have a side hustle just selling comfrey root. It is a great plant. Next up today is lavender. Lavender's going to be the one that I'm like, I love lavender, growing in my gardens, attracting beneficial insects and I kind of like the smell of it, but I am not big on using it. I find lavender used in like soaps and lotions and stuff to be overpowering in smell. Some people love it, I don't. I don't care for the flavor. Uh it actually is a is a uses as a culinary herb a lot in French cooking. You may like it. I put lavender in the same category um that I do tarragon. It's fine for other people to eat. I just don't personally care for it, but it's a great plant. It is actually a fairly profitable plant to grow kind of in a farm like situation. There's a lot of varieties of lavender. Um, I've seen lavender used to make candy and cookies, cakes. I've seen it used in, you know, like I said, French kitchen cooking, things like that. I, I just don't care for it, but. It is very hardy. It's it's hardy to zone 5, and it's a beautiful plant. I, I see it more as an ornamental and beneficial insect attractant, and that once established. This is another one of those things. It's, you know, what does little care mean? Once established, as long as it gets enough moisture and not too much intense sun in the southernmost areas, It is carefree, and it will live, and it will reproduce itself, and it will bring in all kinds of good critters. And you might enjoy using it for things like everything from medicines to soap making, etc. Again, a lot of people like lavender tea. I just, I don't know, it's cloying to me. Uh, My wife despises it. If I say the word, she has a visceral reaction. And it's because being a lady and into all the, the soaps and stuff... That's her number one exposure to it is in that form. And I have to agree that in that form it is nauseating to me. So we get along with that. But in the garden, it's a great thing. Um, In fact, I've had her smell fresh lavender and say, that's beautiful. What is that? It's lavender. Oh, like, like, (laughs) it's funny. Uh, Next up, again, when I talk about underrated, I would say bee balm or bergamot is one of my most highly underrated herbs. And the next would probably be lemon balm, and I'm back to that list of six plants I would make for the small back y- back porch uh, of herbs. Lemon balm would be on that list. Bee balm, believe it or not, may not make it. It would be situational because it's a big plant. Lemon balm is much more prostrate; it means it grows low instead of tall, and so. It is much more friendly to fitting into the small spaces. In fact, the more you prune it, the bushier, and that's how most most mints are. The more you prune it down, the bushier it'll get. Right, Big Balm will do that too, but it needs to grow tall if it's going to flower. And, and the flower is such a big part of it, it's why I might not shove it into that little space if you limited me to six herbs. Lemon Balm is good as an insect repellent. Uh, in, the, in the summer... When the mosquitoes are starting to be a pain in the ass and I'm walking around and they start in the, in the ear, I will if I if I have lemon balm near me, I'll just grab a handful of it and I'll rub it all over my arms, all over my face, all over my neck. And I'm not gonna say it works as good as like, you know, one hundred percent D or Deep Woods Off or something like that, but it definitely reduces insects from bothering you. It makes one of the best tasting teas that I believe you can make with herbs that you grow in your backyard. It's a mint. It asks you for almost nothing. It's not quite as hardy as some other mints. It's down to zone four versus zone three. That's still going to work out for most of you. If you're on that borderline zone three, zone four, and you you mulch the crap out of it in the fall, it will probably overwinter for you, even if you're on that kind of transition area. Um, It is easy to propagate. And I want to talk about something here, too, about a lot of these perennials that are winter hardy and the big giant butt in the room. So recently I did a video that I put out on Odyssey and YouTube, and I had some lemon balm that I had started in one of my hydroponic systems, and I popped one of the plugs into one of my new aquaponic systems. And I said, you know, if nothing else, where I put it elsewhere, it may not survive the winter, Uh, here I know it will, and I'll be able to make cuttings and propagate it and be off to a a rapid start of new lemon balm plants in the spring. Somebody said, yeah, I've got lemon balm in New Jersey, and it overwinters just fine. I completely understand. I agree with you. However, there's a big difference between a lemon balm plant or many other plants planted in the spring grown to maturity, hardened through the summer and fall going into winter, and then planting some of these things like in your more temperate climates like I'm in right now. Right? So you're in zone seven, zone eight. I mean, this is bang on time for planting, as long as the plant's going to either produce or make it in our winter. And so it will probably be the case that all of the ones that I planted will be fine this year. If not, I'll make more. It's no big deal. But, a lot of things are like this. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Celery. You can take the core of a celery, so you, you, you buy a, a core of, uh, uh, of a celery you know, in the store, and you pull all the stalks off and leave the core. And you can plant that core in an aquaponic system, in a garden, in a pot, in the dirt, it will start to grow. And it will grow into a whole new celery plant. And it's a fun thing to do, and it's an easy thing to do, and you should probably try it. And if you do that, once that plant turns dark green, I've seen celery like that growing outside in some of my ebb and flow beds. Temperature go down to 17 degrees, and it's like, I don't care. I've also seen when it's still light green before it hardens off, and it goes down to 30 degrees and it's dead. So there's a lot of plants like that. So just because I'm saying they're hardy through uh, uh, the winter it depends on how advanced that plant has become. Lemon balm is definitely one of those that when it's a young, fragile plant, if you start it in the fall, it may not make it through winter. But once established, it's on. Uh, next up today, lemon verbena. Uh, this is one that's probably you know, the least uh, winter hardy of everything today. It's up there with bay. It's only good down to zone 8. And I would say that in some zone 8 areas, it may not make it through because you live like where I do, where I like, where do you live? You know, zone wise, people ask me that all the time. Uh eight or seven. It's like I'm in zone eight four out of five years, and zone seven one out of five years. So which which year is it? And you don't get to know. Sometimes you get two of those really cold years back to back, and you don't see another one for five years. It, it, you just never know how that's going to work out. And again, is it a plant that's been established for three or four seasons, or is it a brand new one that that will determine it. Uh, but again, some of you live in zone eight, may find this one a little bit hard to overwinter. Some of you might be like, You're crazy, dude. I do it in seven. There, that's another thing about zones. They are also relative. Um, there are parts of Washington state that are zone eight, and I'm in zone eight. We are very different climates with very different winters. And in many ways, the zone eight part of Washington state has more mild winters than I do, and I have more harsh summers than they do. It's it's an odd thing. We, we try to just put everything into a box, and it doesn't work that way. But lemon verbena is, is one of those plants that, You know, when you say how big does it get, well, it depends on how, how big you let it get and where it's planted. If you live in a place that's a solid zone 8 or higher, and you plant it outside, you can grow it into about a 6-foot shrub. You have more lemon verbena than you know what to do with for the rest of your life. If you don't live in a place like that, this is one of those plants that's probably worth putting into a, a, a container that's sizable enough to accommodate it, but yet you can pick up. You don't need a dolly or a hand truck to move it in and out of the house and overwintering it indoors, uh, especially if you're in that kind of gray zone. Like it might be okay, but it might not because in those climates, you know, this is your zone sevens your high sixes that are almost sevens, and your zone eights that are borderline, most of your winter it will be fine outside. So if you have something you can just pick up and move inside on the nights that's going to freeze and then just put back out as soon as the the freezing weather is gone, it's going to be tolerant down to about 30 degrees. So a a light frost is not going to kill it, but it's going to knock it back a bit. But one thing you need to understand if you're going to take the potted plant approach with some of these plants – A plant that will survive 31 degrees just fine, planted in the ground, may not survive it just fine in a pot. You need to be on this and bringing it in. And it makes me think of uh, Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor, when he was being asked about doing this with citrus plants. And uh, in Texas, we, we cannot... Not my part of Texas. We are not going to have oranges and tangerines and stuff like that growing outside in in most of our area without some heroic measures to keep them alive. So people do them in pots. And somebody asked him about doing that, and they asked about a Meyer lemon. And he said, in my opinion, a lot of times doing it with citrus really isn't worth it, but a Meyer lemon probably is. That's how I kind of feel about uh, a lemon verbena. A lot of plants that you would have to overwinter indoors aren't worth it. Lemon verbena is probably worth it. It is mostly used for teas and infusions. It has a huge long list of medicinal benefits that I won't get into today. It's also used in the production of quite a few different uh, alcoholic beverages. And while I've never done it, I should have by now, it just screams that it should be made into a mead. I think it would also be interesting if you had a honey uh, that was produced at least largely in part from lemon verbena, though I don't know if there's... I know there's plenty of uh, flowering activity on lemon verbena. I don't know if it has enough flow to really significantly contribute to uh, honey. I don't know if bees get that much out of it. Uh, next up today is lovage. Lovage is good down to zone three. I don't grow it. And the reason I don't grow it is lovage to me is a perennial cutting celery. It also has some medicinal benefits, but celery actually does too. Um, It's one of those herbs that was really, really popular in the English countryside, and so it was really popular with colonists in the United States. And as celery became more and more something people could easily get their hands on or grow, depending on where they were, uh, it kind of fell out because it it does provide a lot of that celery-like flavor. Um, If you don't grow celery or don't want to grow celery and you want something with that flavor in your garden, lovage would be a great plant to grow. Um it's narrow stemmed, it looks a lot like celery, it tastes to me almost exactly like celery, and it's hardy to zone three. Uh and it it may be something to look at if you uh if you are of that persuasion. Since I grow so much celery, I, I just don't really see any need to grow lovage. That's that's why I don't. Uh next up, marjoram. Marjoram is Often used interchangeably in certain cuisines in certain regions with oregano, though it is a separate plant, it has a tremendous number of medicinal benefits. It's hardy to zone five, and I'm just going to include oregano with this because it's also hardy to zone five. I would not think of these plants as twins, but I would think of them as, uh, as, as sisters. I would say they're more sisters than cousins. They're somewhere between us. Maybe they're half-sisters. That's the best way to look at it, half-sisters. If you can grow one, you can grow the other. If you grow one, you may not feel you need the other. I actually prefer oregano to the two uh, for culinary use. And medicinally, I find them to be very, very similar. Uh, but diversity is a good thing in your gardens. And so I would definitely say that it, that it may be worth growing both of them. Uh, I know some people probably have a better palate than I do and more able to taste differences and might say, you're crazy, because when you're making this, you should use marjoram. You make this, you should use oregano, and you make this, you should use both. And that's great if that's you. Um, I would say, though, if we're back down to my six plants that are going to go on somebody's back porch, because that's all they have room for, oregano is going there. Oregano is going there. It is it is the case that both of these have a, a laundry list of health benefits, and Once you start growing them, you can then learn more about it. But I'm I'm talking things like sore muscles using an infused oil of either one or both. Uh, it works really, really well. And so you've got this great culinary plant. You've got a plant that's actually a medicinal that nobody really thinks about that's really easy to grow. I love oregano for, I have, I've just found to me it is hardier than marjoram in, in my opinion. As far as handling winners and, and a little bit of neglect and abuse and what have you uh, next up peppermint peppermint is obviously everybody thinks of peppermint for tea that's one of the greatest things about it. I find mint to be incredibly useful in a lot of ways as something that's cooling uh, it's really great and that's you know like the you know, mint julep. Uh, drink it's very popular in you know Kentucky Derby Kentucky bourbon and you know because it's hot in the summer and it's a it's a cooling element. I have found that uh, cucumber and mint work well together and in places where you wouldn't think. I mentioned lemon vermina mead earlier, which I have not made but should. I have made cucumber mint mead. It is awesome. It is it is absolutely freaking amazing. You when you give it to somebody. They they can't tell, but they know there's two flavors in there that they should know, but they can't tell you what it is. And as soon as you tell them, they're like, oh, yeah, mint. Duh. And you're like, okay, what's the other one? They're like, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure. Cucumber, yeah. And it's uh, when I I did a mead sampling at one of the workshops where, and that's not happening this time. just so you know, I don't have a bunch of mead made up or anything. Um, but that was one of the the top favorites. I've had cucumber, uh, mint, margaritas, and uh, going a little bit sweeter side, uh, what do you call them, Uh, with the rum, uh, mojitos, right, made with cucumber mint. Fantastic. Uh, Mint is one of those things. There's so many things you can do with it. I don't really need to tell you about it. We've done a cucumber salsa using mint. Works great for that. Uh, It is a fantastic for, you know, Peppermint schnapps. You can make your own. It's not that hard. There are actually podcasts that I've done in the past on how to make your own liqueurs. And basically, you can look those up if you want to know exactly how, but with peppermint, you make a really strong tea, and you cut it with a lot of sugar syrup, and then you add alcohol. And you can control your own proof and what have you, and so you can do that with it as well. Next up today is the one that I have today in the list that I would call... More of a food than just a seasoning, and it is one of my favorite plants to grow. And what what I do here is I grow it all year round, but all through the summer it's like I hate you. I don't really want to be here. It's backwards, right? It, it, it's not. It's the winter where it like also when it just gets all beautiful and starts growing like crazy again, and it's red-vein sorrel. And sorrel itself is considered an herb. And I like to use red vein sorrel in salads and soups, and I like to use it with soups right at the end so it doesn't lose all its color. It has kind of a sour, lemon-like flavor. It is a nutritional powerhouse. It is, is a weed. I mean, it grows like a clumping weed because that's what it is, and yet it's an incredibly useful and beautiful plant. Next up, rosemary. Um, the official scuttlebutt on rosemary is it will overwinter in Zone 7, I'm saying six for what it's worth. I've grown rosemary in central Pennsylvania in zone six. We lived there for three years. I planted it the year we got there, and it was still there when we left. I'm calling that zone six. That may not be for everybody. It may depend on varieties and do you mulch and who knows what, but I, I've I've managed to get rosemary in zone six. Rosemary would be one of the ones if I was – Making that list of six for your back porch, if you're the apartment person, I would really think hard about wanting to include it. It it gets to be a fairly large plant, though, but it's easy to maintain as a smaller plant. It is the one herb that, while I do use it fresh, like I talked about making um, a brush of like rosemary and thyme and basil, and then using that to dress a steak board or whatever, I find that to be fantastic, or rosemary, oregano, and uh, and uh, and thyme. as another good way to go with that. I actually prefer it, for most uses, dried. It, it, it's, it's really kind of the only herb that if I have my choice with cooking, I want to use dried. If I was doing a dish and I wanted oregano in it. It's not like I won't use dried oregano, but if I have my choice, I'll use fresh. A lot of things that I want to do with rosemary, I want to go with the dried. I just find that it's almost too pine tree flavored when it's fresh and it mellows a little bit when it's dried. It's easier to break the needles up into smaller pieces or grind them into a powder. One of my favorite uses for rosemary, it's kind of one of my little my little hacks for doing grilled steaks that also not only reduces because when you grilled steak you can get some level of carcinogenic production from that fantastic mallard reaction that gives you that brown char right that black brown char um, rosemary actually reduces those significantly. And it has an amazing flavor. And what I like to do with dried rosemary is pop that into my sprice grinder, which is really a coffee grinder, and grind that into a powder. And then whatever I'm using as a rub on steak, let's say it's just salt, pepper, garlic, um, you know, a little bit of a rosemary powder mixed in with that. And you get that, that reduction in, in, in toxins during that hard, fire, charred steak uh, cook. And you also get this amazing flavor. And when it's done that way... You don't really know what it is. You just know that you like it. Very easy to grow. If there is a honey badger herb, it is rosemary. It is a, you know, a wild evergreen shrub. That's about as tough as it gets if you think about other wild evergreen shrubs. Uh, next up, salad burnet. This one's hardy down to zone four. I, I do tend to agree with that assessment. Uh, it's called salad burnet. works really good in salads, uh, much like borage or comfrey and a few other things. It has a cucumber flavor to it, which makes it pair really cool with mint in a place where somebody's like, where's the cucumbers? and why is the... Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's actually a member of the rose family, though. It doesn't look like rose, but it's in the same family as roses. And it has a lot of medicinal uses as well. So it's a culinary and a medicinal. Um, it's an astringent would be its primary herbal action, so you can look that up if you want to know more. I'm not going to turn this into an herbal course today, but just know... Almost all of these herbs and almost all herbs, period, have some level of medicinal uh, use. And that often has to do with how much and in what concentrations. We take something that's very much just a culinary herb uh, and we concentrate it into a tincture, for instance. We get a lot more of a medicinal bang for our buck. Uh, A classic example of a wild herb would be uh, uh, dandelion. Dandelion is an incredibly powerful medicinal herb, but in the amounts that would generally be used as a uh, cutting herb for salad, it's just a m- very, very mild tonifying herb. Salad burnet, much the same way, with far more pleasing, less bitter flavor. Next up, sage. Sage is that would be my on my backyard. You're gonna have to prune it because it's a shrub and it gets pretty big. But that would be in my list of backyard herbs. Sage is one of those herbs that it's so underused in America. And it's underused primarily because most people that use sage are using dried up, crumbly crap out of a jar that just isn't what sage is supposed to be. Sage is incredibly easy to grow. It's hardy to zone five. It has an amazing flavor. And when you're using it in your cooking, you want to use it a lot like you would use basil. You get the bigger leaves. You make a little pile. Roll them up and and cut what's called a chefonade, which is like thin slivers of it, and then use that in your cooking. Thanksgiving's coming up if you're not including turkey I'm, I'm sorry sage in the herb rub that you're you know putting on your turkey and in your gravy and if you're doing like a sausage stuffing, sage needs to be in all that Sage is just sage and turkey were made to be together two American originals and they belong together. It can be used in so many other ways, though. Medicinally, it's a very—it's considered uh, by many indigenous cultures a sacred herb. Uh, there's various different varieties of sage. A lot of the sage that's used in like ceremonial usage is a bit different than the sages that we cook with, but they're really not as much different as people would make them out to be. Um, I just kind of feel like a homestead-lacking sage is really lacking something, especially if you're warm enough to be able to have it, which, again, is Zone 5. Next up, Spearmint. Everything I said about all the other mints applies to Spearmint. It just tastes a little bit different. Uh, but Spearmint, Peppermint, again, Lemon balm. all these mints, you need some containment strategy, or they need to go in a place where you don't mind if they wander because they will. But Spearmint, um, what I like about Spearmint Compared to peppermint, when it comes to like teas, is it's the only way I can describe it is it's softer. It's softer in the way that it feels. And I like to use spearmint with other herbs and teas. I like to use spearmints um, with teas that use fruits. So, like a tea that's using an infusion of, let's say, some dried raspberry. So raspberry fruit and raspberry leaf and spearmint, that goes together fantastically. Another example would be orange. Orange, like if you get really good orange rind, not pith, but actual, you know, the zest, the true part of the orange, and you're using that in a tea, spearmint balances with that incredibly well. And anything similar to that, spearmint will go really well. It's super easy to grow. Everybody should grow it. Super easy to propagate, hardy to zone three. Tarragon. Good to zone four. I'm not going to say a lot about it because it's probably my least favorite culinary herb. I remember the first time I ever uh, got a a, 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 like a spice seasoning mix that had tarragon in it, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I don't really care for it. And then uh, Chef Keith Snow used to have a a sauce that he sold that was made with tarragon, and it's like, man, what is that? And I I, I finally realized over all these different things because I never really grew it. Or ate it fresh that I just didn't care for. And the more that I tried with tarragon in it, the more that I hated tarragon. And one of the reasons I may not like it is it's just, it's so prominent. And it has a flavor that's similar to, like, anise or fennel. And I actually love fennel. But I just find tarragon to be so... Over the top with it, I would rather personally use fennel. But of course, fennel—fennel fennel is not a perennial; it's an annual, so you have to keep growing it. But it's actually very easy to grow. Um, it is—it doesn't mean you won't like it. it it's one of the—I um, think there's like mother herbs or something like that in French cooking. They're like the core group of herbs that are used in you know, herbs de province and things like that. And and tarragon and. and uh, uh, was the one we said earlier, uh, lavender, are both in that mix. And I just... So I'm not going to say anything bad like don't grow it or anything. I want not have included it. I'm just going to say it's, it's not my thing, so I don't know a lot about it. But it's hardy to zone for. And I've had plenty of people tell me, just use less. And so I've tried that, and I figured out for me, the less that's the right amount is zero. <laughs> but you might enjoy it. Uh, next up, time. Time is an herb that, again, would make that list of six for the back porch. Like, I might three to four definites, and then you would sprinkle in two more based on space available and what the person likes. But thyme is one of the most useful, hardiest, badass honey badger herbs grown within its climate limitations you can grow. It's hardy to zone five, and you almost can't get too hot for it. There's lots of different varieties of trailing and more bush-type levels of thyme. But thyme is one of those that I really recommend you grow because the fresh thyme is just so much better than, um, than dried. And, and, and thyme is one of the herbs that, like, the dried version of it's pretty good. I use a lot of dried thyme because, you know, convenience and what have you. But fresh thyme is a complete differentiator in cooking. Especially, like, if you're doing it with soups and all, you can use your dried time early on. You're fresh, you want to stay for the end. But where it really excels is with meats, Um, including really subtle uses of it. Like I mentioned, the herb brushing of oil would be one. Another would be if if you're braising a piece of meat. So braising, we're going to have liquid around it, but it's not completely immersed. The top of the meat is out of the liquid. Uh, A few strands of thyme on top of that while it braises, it does amazing, amazing things. It is one of what I call the four horsemen of herbal cooking. Uh, Thyme just wonderful. And then the last one is winter savory. Winter savory um, looks a lot like summer savory. They're actually used quite the same way. Winter savory is not called winter savory because it only grows in winter. It's called winter savory because unlike summer savory, it doesn't die when winter comes. In the climates where it can um, remain evergreen, it grows through the winter. It's hardy to zone four, but it may get knocked back a little bit more in the colder parts of the climates. The chief difference in flavor between summer and winter savory is winter savory tends to be a little bit more peppery. It's really good in stuffing, so winter savory and sage in that turkey stuffing, for instance, fan-freaking-tastic. It's also a really attractive, low-maintenance border plant, so it's great for that. So it's another one to look at. So there's 20 herbs that you can plant. We're going into winter. You're going to be figuring out what to do next year. It's kind of a primer of that, and I don't think everybody is going to grow all of them. I really don't. And that wasn't my intention. I said, hey, grow these 20 herbs. When I give these lists, it never is. It's like, okay, pick and choose from this. And kind of over time, maybe take three or four or six uh, in any given year and add them to the yard. And then the ones that take off, keep growing them. And the ones that don't take off, Either give it another try or try something else. The beauty of this, when we're going into these perennial productive herbs, is as you get them established, they become lifelong partners with you on your homestead. Again, not for everybody, but what a great way to onboard people into plants is herbs. And it's again, that's those things that I just want you to kind of picture this. If you've kind of held back on on growing your own stuff up till now. If you had 10 of these 20 growing on your property here and there and everywhere, it would be the case that most days there'd be something you were cooking that you're like, ah, you know what, some fresh oregano would be nice with that, and you walk outside, and in five minutes you come in you have a handful of fresh oregano. It's like having a free store right out on the back porch or right out in the backyard. And... It brings so much to a property to have it well-herbed, if that's such of a thing. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Just a little, I wasn't really planning it, but I saw that graphic and I thought it was a good little slice of inspiration and a little change up and something with all the ass clownery going on in the media right now, people losing their minds and going crazy and lockdown this and COVID that and Biden this and Trump that. Hey, how about things we actually control? There ain't nothing you control more than what you grow in your own backyard. With that, if you uh, like today's show and the work that we do, remember you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll find all the items that I've reviewed over the years. Anything there, I own it, I use it, I bought it. And if I needed it again, I'd buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. And no matter what you buy when you shop at tspaz, you help support us in the work that we do. Today's item of the day are the Felco. F2 hand pruners. This is an area when it comes to buying a tool that I believe buy once, cry once is the model. Felcos are expensive. A set of F2 hand pruners retail, a little hand pruner, right? Retail for about seventy bucks. They're on sale right now for forty nine. It's so a pretty good markdown. But they're not like a lot of other things I bring you where I'm like, they don't go on sale often. I'm going to tell you right now, most of the time, you can get a set of these for about $50 somewhere. I'm bringing them around because we're heading into winter. This is the time to get ahead on your pruning. Once that tree goes dormant, you can prune it, right, if you're waiting for dormancy to prune it. It doesn't matter if you prune it in late January or you prune it in November. If it's dormant, you can prune it. There really ain't a hide nor hair of difference in it. And I would generally rather be outside pruning trees in late November, unless I'm out hunting, than I would in like late January when it just tends to be a lot colder and wetter and windier and more miserable. But it's up to you. But I just thought it would be a good item to bring around today. Um, I do give you, if you read the article today, a couple options from Corona is kind of like... If you don't want to spend this much, if you want to go down and spend about twenty-five bucks, you can get the sixty-two fifty coronas. I really don't recommend that. If you, if you're going to be pruning in a backyard for you know another ten years or more of your life, this is worth a few extra bucks to get the best tool made. If you go to a nursery where professional nurserymen are pruning all day every day. 99 times out of 100, what you're going to see in that sheath on the guy's hip is a, a set of Felco F2s. I will say the F2s, while I consider them a small hand pruner, they're they're large to some people's hands. They make one called an F6. If you have a bit smaller hands, it's just as good. It's a little bit smaller frame. It may be a little bit more comfortable for, for women or Younger kids, if you're getting a set for like your kids really into stuff like this or whatever, uh, or in some cases, people just that have smaller hands uh, may find a movie a little bit more comfortable. I included a video in uh, how to sharpen and maintain them, and what I love the most about them is if you ever actually wear the primary blade out on them, it, it's designed to come off and be replaced. If they're maintained and taken care of, this really is a lifelong purchase. And that's why I think, you know, instead of 25 bucks on a set of Coronas, it's worth 50 bucks for the Felcos. And again, I believe you use what professionals use when the money is not prohibitive. So I know there are people that might be like, you know, I can either get a $25 set of Coronas or not buy this this year. Okay, that's fine. If that's not you, if you can afford it, this is the place it's, it's worth making the investment. I don't know anybody that owns these. It's like, gee, I wish I would have bought the cheaper ones. I can say the other way around. If you're not willing to spend at least 25 bucks on a set of printers and get the kind of mid-grade uh, Coronas, buy the cheapest ones you can get and throw them away once a year until you get the money to buy a better set. Because it, it, once you go below that, it's all, frankly, one season's worth of garbage, in my opinion. Even Even relatively decent makers, if they're used... At all with any frequency they wear out. My wife has a pair made by Fiskars. They kind of have this offset little cam thing and all. And she uses them for like pruning like roses and Rose of Sharon and stuff like that. And they're okay. But I can tell already after one season they're not what they were the day she got them. And they ain't been used that hard. So the, the, the advice is there. But remember, it doesn't matter what you're buying, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And sometimes really good shit comes out on tspaz, and it goes away fast because there are short-term sales and stuff that I get alerts on. So you should be on the TSP Telegram channel. The Telegram channel is like a, te- is like a text app for your phone, except it's, it's not run by Apple who gives away all your information to the government. right? And you can talk to all your friends, you can send all kinds of stuff, you can even make phone calls on it. It's really cool. And they have channels and groups as well. A group is where everybody talks to each other. A channel is like where one person broadcasts to the group. That way you only hear from me. And if you get on the Telegram channel, every time I have something like this or anything cool that comes out, you get a little text message. And if you say you don't want any more, you just don't follow me on Telegram anymore. But that way you won't miss anything. There's a lot of other great ways to stay in touch with us. If you go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Get Social, you'll see all these ways you can stay in touch with us with social media and other options that are not the big tech titans that are screwing you over and using you like a piece of worn-out meat. Because that's what you are to Mark Zuckerberg. That's what you are to whatever that asshole's name is that runs uh, Twitter. That's what you are to Google. There are other options that are there. Last but not least, consider joining the MSB. If you do that, you help support the show and the work that we do. It comes out to $0.18 an episode. You get a bunch of discounts. It more than covers the cost annually of your membership. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with the song of the day. We are uh, recognizing the loss and passing away of Eddie Van Halen, one of the greatest guitarists to ever live, uh, with Van Halen Week. And today's song is Panama by David Lee Roth & Co. This was one of the last songs released before David Lee Roth left Van Halen and Sammy Hagar took over as the lead singer. I am not one of these I'm Team David" or Team Dave, Team Sammy guys. I actually look at Van Halen is there's the Dave Van Halen, there's the Sammy Van Halen. They're both friggin' awesome groups. And if we don't try to pick between the two of them and there's no need to, you just it's almost like there's just two bands. Even though, you know, the the band itself stayed the same. And of course, the amazing Eddie kept running that amazing guitar with both front men. So but I actually tend to have more fondness, I think, for the David Lee Roth era, just because I was younger then, and that's when Van Halen was new to me, and all the new songs were coming out, and they did come out with so many songs between 78 and 82, and this song was huge, and it was huge long after it came out. This was this song was a big deal when I was in high school, when Hagar was already the lead singer, and it was still very popular. This song actually has nothing to do with the nation of Panama at all. And if you listen to the words, it's pretty obvious. It's about a car, and it's about a chick, and the chick was a stripper. And the way the song ended up getting written is David was accused one day of never writing songs about anything except women and cars and drugs. He's like, wait a minute, I don't think I ever actually wrote a song about a car or cars. So he started writing a song about a car but being Dave, he was also, without realizing it, writing the song about the stripper who was also named Panama. That's where the song came from. It doesn't really matter because it's just a badass song. Really showcases Eddie's talent on the guitar. It was a huge hit. And again, it's kind of. I look at it, you know, Jump and this song kind of were big at the same time. But this one seemed to be kind of the farewell to Dave era song and I really did like it a lot with that it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast